Hi, my name is Yasmin Tarehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. Today's episode is about Qigong, consciousness, the Tao, and pathfinding. On today's show, we'll be featuring our guest, Thomas Drage. Thomas is a classically trained acupuncturist, herbalist, teacher, and author. He's dedicated his life to studying and teaching the healing practices of energy cultivation, conscious movement, internal alchemy, and the Taoist path to peace. For the past 30 years, Thomas has been distilling these practices into a transformational process called pathfinding. His work translates into a compassionate conversation of conscious movement, awakened action, and individually crafted tools to navigate one's path. He's the founder of the Pathfinder Institute and Spirit Destiny Qigong. Thomas is also currently offering Qigong online, as well as individual Pathfinder mentor sessions and in-person healing sessions in New York. Thank you so much for joining us today, Thomas. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's exciting to get to talk to you. Yes, likewise. So Thomas, you focus on the intersection of a number of different modalities like the Tao, acupuncture, Qigong, consciousness, and spiritual transformation. Can you tell us about your philosophy on healing and just like your work in general? Yeah, I think um, I'm a maybe a typical or a sort of classical story of a healer in that I was awakened early in life to human suffering in the place that I grew up. And I lived in a relatively uh, dangerous house in many ways, also loving in many ways. It was one of those places where you were never quite sure. And I saw a lot of things early on in my life growing up in downtown Boston in the 60s and 70s. And From a very early age, I started asking the question, why? You know, why are people suffering so much? Why are we all suffering so much? Why is there so much pain in the world? And that drove me really for a long time uh, trying to answer that question. And so my work was the evolution of asking that question for a long time, studying with a lot of masters and eventually um shifting the question shifting the question can you say more about that yeah so at some point um the question why sort of leads to a dead end and every tradition tries to answer it and has a methodology for managing it but what i came to realize um along the way was that the process of living and the way of living, really the Tao of living, is the um, mastery that we're all searching for. And looking for a cause, which is a very Western way to um, sort of target a question, doesn't really lead you to an answer of what to do. <laughs> so right. to come to to come to the how to live and be and what we are while we're here became a much more powerful question for me. And that's, I think, what my work inevitably came to answer and study. And you talk about the Tao and I'm for the audience, I think it's important to actually define what the Tao is. And I think that's also a very (laughs) difficult uh, question to answer. But from your perspective, can you talk about what the Tao is? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one of those words, right? Um, the Tao Te Ching, which is the oldest text on the Tao, written by Lao Tzu, the first line of the book says, the Tao that can be named is not the true Tao. <laughs> and that's a sort of a nice setup for the complexity or the paradox of the problem, which is that To talk about the Tao is not really to know the Tao, but it turns out, oh, we need language along the way as we're going. So there's a couple really important ways to think about this word and what it means. And the first is that it's translated as um, the way or the path. 
And what that means for me is the, um, the gateway to discovery of oneself and the universe, but really to oneself and the inner universe. And so the Tao, um, which is often referred to as that which pervades all things in all times and is neither created nor destroyed, but merely always is, um, is also the pathway to self-knowledge. So the interconnectedness and interdependence and interrelationship of all things infinitely is the Tao on one level. And then the journey to understanding your own essential nature and way of being in the world is the path of the Tao that every individual takes or has the choice to take. Mm, yeah, beautiful. And Thomas, can you tell us what Qigong is? Perhaps you can walk through this practice and kind of explain it to a beginner. I think Qigong has become really popular in the West, and I'm really curious what attracted you to this practice. Why is it important? I mean, I myself have just started to practice Qigong, and I feel an incredible subtle difference um, but not a, mm -hmm. uh, a drastic difference. And I think in our Western culture, we're so interested in just seeing results in real time. And so I think I'm so interested in Qigong and how the movements really transform your life, but in a very subtle, uh, um, slower way. So yeah, so I'll really curious if you could, you know, walk us through this practice and explain it to us as a beginner. Yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing. It's funny to see something that you've done for 30 something years become popular. <laughs> and this has been my experience with a lot of the things that I've done, but, um, yeah, it's interesting. So if we go back to the Tao for a moment and we, and we recognize that from a cosmology standpoint, the Tao is this interconnected fiber of the universe, almost like the dark matter of the universe. And um, when we experience life, we take the you know light and warmth of the sun and the water and the microbial potential of the earth, and we mix them. And we mix them at just the right amount to generate human life on earth, to generate all kinds of other life on earth. And so the study of life's engagement and life's expression is at the root of qigong practice the actual study of the environment the way that nature relates the way that it relates to the sun the moon the stars the way that water and earth relate the way that the trees speak to each other the way the light of day goes you know shorter and shorter toward the solstice and longer and longer toward the summer solstice the whole expression of change that is life is deeply, deeply, deeply rooted in all Taoist study, Chinese cosmology, but also it is the essence of life. And so when we practice Qigong, we're really practicing the study of change. And what happens when we do that is that we study all the different frequencies and forces and qualities of change in all of their different permutations. And over time, we start to map that within ourselves. So for a concrete example, the emotion that we often refer to as anger is a very fast, explosive kind of energy that creates breakthroughs or damage depending on how it's channeled and is then followed by a kind of heavy drop in energy to a lower frequency and either a harmonizing flow through after that or not by studying the way that that energy feels in your body without attaching it to ideas or conclusions or particular emotions, you start to recognize the frequency. And then once you can recognize it in your body, 
consciously, then you suddenly find yourself in a situation, someone cuts you off in a car, and you feel that frequency come up for a moment. But because you've identified it, it doesn't have all the attachments that go with it. It has, oh right, this is followed by the next lower level frequency once I've discharged this energy. What's the best way for me to move this energy through myself right now? And so what we see with people when they practice over time, yes, their bodies grow stronger, they grow healthier, they grow more balanced, but their minds also start to become nimble to the subtlety and nuance of change in themselves and their environment and their ability to harmonize with it just naturally starts to grow. So the practice of Qigong is really the cultivation. You know, Qi means, it's translated as energy or life force. It means the frequency of any kind of life or any kind of um, manifestation in the world. And the Gong is the cultivation of study that allows you to be in harmony and alignment with it. Thomas, it takes people a really long time to obviously become Qigong masters. And I'm seeing a lot of people in the industry uh, share kind of like accessible Qigong for the West. Is that type of Qigong just as valuable, like these sort of bite-sized Qigong movements? Like when do you start to see the benefits of Qigong practice? You know, kind of like yoga is maybe not so comparable, but obviously doing yoga for five minutes versus an hour has a very distinct, um, reflect, you know, number of, of benefits. So I'm curious if Qigong is similar to that. Um, you could, if you know the answer or if you feel comfortable sharing. Yeah, I think, um, you know, they say every voice has an ear, every teaching has a student, every plant has a, um, like a, in medicine, we say every plant has a, imbalance that it corrects anytime anyone's coming into a practice that's going to generate greater awareness of themselves in the world that's a good thing and i think what happens is that a lot of the bite-sized you know western friendly language and teachings allow people to get comfortable and get a handle on these concepts and then they seek deeper teachings after that. But I'm a big fan of, you know, we're in an English-speaking country that's got a science background and it's filled with rational-minded people, in theory anyway. <laughs> and so to access people from where they are and be able to bring them into the understanding of the material is critical. So for masters who teach um Without doing that, I think they're playing on the fantasy of practitioners who want the robes and the, you know, the teacher that speaks in riddles. And I think that is ultimately slows down one's understanding of what the work means. There is a time for, you know, those riddles have a have a practice and a purpose. But if you start there, it's like you don't start with calculus. You start with basic addition and subtraction. Right, right. Thomas, can you tell us a little bit more about your personal journey? What brought you to these practices? I mean, you kind of briefly uh, talked a little bit about your your background, but what brought you to studying Qigong? What brought you to creating uh, the work of pathfinding, which we'll go into next, and just kind of, kind of trying to help elevate consciousness? Um, yeah. I mean, I grew up in a racially conflicted town, Boston, at the height of desegregation. I was a 14-year-old. I ran with a pack of kids that skateboarded everywhere and in every neighborhood, wherever the good skating was. And so I lived in this, you know, unfiltered connection through my passion, which was really skateboarding. But at the same time, there was all these territorial wars going on all the time in our town and it was a funny thing because there was really no safe place my house also wasn't that safe and so besides asking the question why i also was afraid all the time 
And I was looking for a way to deal with being afraid all the time also. And it started with martial arts training, actually. I moved to Boulder, Colorado in the early 80s, and one of my first teachers was a Navy SEAL, and we spent a lot of time training with these very intense techniques, but he was also a healer. And so we would do all of these techniques around healing and self-awareness. And um, I started to learn that there were two sides to this coin, that you know, fear and pain and suffering and healing and growth and consciousness were linked. And so my journey you know, just kept going. Chogyam Trungpa was still there when I was there, and I found the Buddhist tradition. And the journey just keeps going to studying medicine in New York and more martial arts with many different teachers. And all of the martial arts systems have, the Chinese ones, have a Qigong practice built into them that they do for the healing cultivation piece. And uh, at some point in my career, I was running an integrated cancer center, and I was working a lot with people who were very sick and dying. And I had this profound realization that was profound for me anyway, that um, I had sort of been fighting against life my whole life up till that point running you know dangerously towards death i like to do a lot of dangerous fun things to me but not so safe racing motorcycles and you know free fighting with other martial artists and climbing mountains and jumping out of airplanes and i was working with these people and they were desperately clinging to to the gift of life and i suddenly realized how irresponsible I'd been with this gift that I'd been given to to be here and how I was almost ashamed um, to have that realization in their presence and know that I had you know <laughs> missed this critical gratitude of of being here on the planet and they really taught me they were my greatest teachers I think to finally turn the story of, oh, right, this is a profound gift to be allowed to live in this world right now and be alive. And from that point on, I sort of lost my interest in anything that wasn't about sharing the gift of existing, <laughs> really, and showing people how to do it well or helping them to see their way of doing it well. Wow. That's really beautiful. And how has uh, COVID and the pandemic, has that changed your perspective? Um, or how have you been able to sort of uh, stay in this space while there is this pandemic? I think, you know, it sort of has tested a lot of us in new ways. And I'm curi curious how the pandemic has changed your perspective even more so or you know if you feel like yeah. you sort of stayed solid during this time i mean i try not to be solid okay <laughs> i try to be adapting i try to be adapting right maintaining to alignment with the moments change but i would say what was really you know we had a movement studio in tribeca and my midtown medical practice in the city and they everything shut down and we closed the movement studio and took a pretty hard financial hit. And um, it was interesting because the motto of our school in Tribeca was slow is the fast way. Mm. <laughs> and all I've been telling people for years is how much information shows up when you start to move more slowly and act more slowly because you have the ability to attend to much more subtle and, and tinier moments. And for me, it was pretty amazing because I have two boys who are 14 and 17 and I'm always working and suddenly I was home all the time. And I was kind of home all the time at this critical moment where they really needed dad. And um, 
I don't think uh, any greater gift could have happened to me than the pandemic <laughs> because my relationship with myself and with my kids and with my wife all got to really drill down and drill in and connect. And um, yeah, I think it was actually a really critical moment for them that I wasn't fully aware of. So it brought me into that awareness and it's been a huge gift. It's been financially brutal, but that's never where I've really put my attention anyway. Um, I'm not a trust fund kid or anything, but um, for me, the meaning of the moment and the connection of the family was really, again, like, like the people I worked with who were very sick, like the value and importance of being of service to your family was really driven home for me during this. Wow. And how do you think you will, you know, change or I guess maybe adapt moving forward if things, you know, start to open up and if we start to see kind of a new normal, how do you, are you going to take the lessons of this year into, uh, whatever new life or new earth we move into? I'm just really, <laughs> yeah. really, really curious how people are navigating <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I'm not uncommon in, um, in that. So I've been going back to work one day a week, seeing patients. And the first Tuesday that I went back to see people in person, I couldn't believe how far away I live from my work. And I was just like, okay, I'll never go back to more than one day a week of doing this. <laughs> That's just not going to happen. So the whole relationship of, you know, space and time shifted for me. Wow. And at the same time I had pivoted to teaching online, um, which has allowed me to bring the work to a lot of people and the platform that I'm using records my classes so i've been able to build up a library of material also for people which has been great and it's inexpensive for them which is also a big deal for me because i want the work to be able to get out there um and so i've yeah i've pivoted to the work that i love to do the most and i'm making that hopefully all i do now Wow. Which is the Qigong work, meditation, and the Pathfinder work. I want to go back to something you just spoke about in terms of your you change your experience of time. Um, I'm mm -hmm. I'm actually curious how you think about time. Well, I think about it in two major ways. One of them is the conventional way, which is that we're three we're three dimensional sense beings. Um in that we have the ability to perceive in three dimensions. And so our relationship to time is based on its correlation with space. Um, we don't actually perceive time directly. So we perceive its effect on the other three dimensions, which is why a lot of people during COVID are having so much trouble with time because their environments are changing so much less. And so the whole rhythm of of life and moving through time physically is going away and people are getting lots of experiences of, you know, this day bleeding into the next day to the next day. And that's, I think because they're missing that 3d change aspect that they didn't realize they were using so much to navigate organizing time. Um, that being said, my personal belief is that time isn't linear, but that, um, it's simultaneous. And so the concept of enlightenment or reincarnation or karma, anything related to time, um, I don't think happens in a linear fashion. I think it's all happening at once. And we're just organizing it into this um, kind of liminal, linear system in order to make sense of it because we don't have the, we literally don't have the sense gear to um, take in that data directly. I heard this really great quote from Carolyn Mace once, and she said, the more emotional weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, that we carry, the longer we have to wait, W-A-I-T, for things to happen. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. So good, right? <laughs> yeah. 
And that's also been my experience on the path. Uh, I think for all anyone who is a spiritual seeker, I think that the moment we start to unravel this emotional weight, you know, to the, our experience of time really shifts. You know, we're able to be mm -hmm. much more grounded, much more present. And I think, um, you know, things start to come to you as a, as, a, as opposed to you going out and trying to get them. Um, yes. You know, there's just more of a balance there. So really interesting. Can you tell us, Thomas, what you mean by pathfinding? Um, yeah. So it's funny because I, that name sort of showed up in my head one day and I just went with it. <laughs> and um, people have told me all different kinds of things that it means later, which was funny. But for me, I'm a teacher. I've been a teacher for a long time. I'm not a fan of teachers who put themselves at the center of everything. I'm a fan of teachers that empower people to not need their teacher, but to learn tools to be able to rely on their own perception and their own way of moving through the world. And so um, when I was a young kid, I'm referencing being a young kid a lot, that's funny. <laughs> I got lost in the woods and um, really lost in the woods and I was alone and I was overcome by terror. And at some point, um, I realized that I wasn't going to find my way out right away. And I like that moment because when I work, most of the people I work with are usually at or just came out of being lost in the woods. And they're in that moment in their lives where all the tools that they know don't work and they know there's some place they have to go, but they have no idea what it is or how to get there. And so the first thing that happens once you move past the fear and the attachment of trying to get out of being lost in the woods, right? So once you come to accept this moment is that you deal with some very factual, functional issues like food and shelter, et cetera. That translates into everyone's life differently as like, oh, I've got to deal with this company or this bank or this person or whatever. But then the next thing that happens is that suddenly you're in the woods at night feeling centered and you get to experience a world you've never seen and may never see again, which is this open, straight on perception of the moment because there's nowhere to go and nothing to see and except this place. And so you find yourself maybe, you know, seeing a deer waking up or an owl sitting on a tree or the moon in a way you've never seen it before you just come to know that who you are is enough all by itself right here in this moment and that's sort of the beginning of the of the journey you know toward your path and for me pathfinder because of the word the dao was really about everyone finding their own dao you know their own path their own way and the tools are are beautifully simple. We know in every tradition that if one can reach a place of profound stillness, then profound clarity follows. And with a little bit of guidance, when we start to achieve that state, um, from the stillness which is also like a darkness or a void, comes the clarity of emptiness, and it's followed by the initiation of um, your shing, your essential nature. And your essential nature then generates your purpose. It's the seed of your purpose in this life. And so Pathfinder for me is about bringing people into that stillness and clarity and essential nature so that they can then live in alignment with that spontaneously and have their path naturally grow in front of them. Wow. Thomas, do you believe that everyone has a purpose? I do, but I think I'd have to define purpose because my, my definition of purpose is the most aligned expression of your essential nature. So if you're an oak tree, your purpose is to grow, you know, broad and tall and strong and 
you know, seek heaven with your canopy and seek water in the earth with your roots and connect with your community and share resources and live and make more oak trees. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a very simple level of looking at it, but it's the same thing if your nature is to be um, a seeker and a sharer and a finder, or if it's to be a hunter, or if it's to be a you know, connector, or if it's to be a builder, whatever it is. And I'm using these broad terms not specifically, so builder can mean it, building anything, connector, connecting anything, anyone. Your purpose will be the natural expression of that essential nature in this environment. And so the the environment changes, and so the expression of the seed of essential self changes. And so if you're in alignment with the environment that you're in, you know, your internal emotional environment, your external environment, you'll naturally express the appropriate purpose of your essential nature. And I I just want to say about purpose that, you know, it's a buzzword right now. And I think a lot of people are getting really messed up by it because it's not something outside of you. And it's not, it's not some kind of golden ticket. It's really about accepting who you are at the core and embracing that as the fuel and sort of source of your journey, of your journey here. Wow. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of people, I was just reading uh, this article in the Atlantic about workism and how like 85% of people are really disengaged with their jobs. And I think we've been taught in culture, at least in Western culture, that so much of our value is based on our external reality and what we've accomplished externally. And I think Eastern philosophy from what I have read and understood is about you know, our internal world and whether we're in alignment. And so I'd love to ask you how you know you're in alignment or out of alignment. And, you know, obviously it's a process, right? We move through life and there's new challenges Mm -hmm. that come in our way. So we're never really done, but I think it gets easier. We start to, um, the, the, the time between getting out of alignment, getting back in alignment starts to decrease, uh, when yes. once you do the work. And so, yeah, I'm really curious how you know you're in alignment or out of alignment and um, what sort of shifts you make when you're out of alignment. <laughs> I mean, anytime I find myself reflecting um, with any tension on the past or projecting with any tension into the future, I know that I'm not aligned in the present moment and that can look like uh you know tension in my shoulders or an increase in my heart rate or a shallowness in my breath or a scatteredness in my thoughts or a desire to check out you know like netflix or whatever that process uh the more subtly you can connect to that process as it's happening as you said, the faster the shift goes. So for me, I'll use any number of techniques from walking in the woods to doing a Qigong practice to doing two minutes of Wim Hof breathing to, um, you know, downing some digestible sugar because maybe my blood sugar's off or whatever it is. And I think um, I don't try to use the brain and my mind when my mind's already in a trap. So I seek the environment around me or my body to bring me back to center. And that creates a little pathway for my mind to then follow. And I think one of the biggest traps that people fall into is that when the mind's out of control, they try to use the mind to control it. And that's not the time to do that. The time to do that, to use the mind is when it's not out of control when it's off spinning, you want to use the body and the environment to reset you and then come back to the mind and work with it. Mm, That's beautiful. Thomas, what kind of person usually comes to you for help, or at least when you had your practice open um, and you were doing a mix of things like acupuncture and, um, 
and other modalities? What kind of, what's like your typical, or do you have a typical client? Are there, are there some themes <laughs> or maybe I should ask, are there some themes that are really popular? That there are some themes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think since I started the Pathfinder thing, it's been like five, five years officially, the types of people that come to me are everything from people who are in, you know, crisis change. Like they've been blindsided by something, a death in the family, a loss of something, some, something that's caused them like to be blindsided and they're, they were just, you know, airlifted and dropped in the middle of the woods. Um, to people who are, you know, leaders in the, in the world who are trying to do better and be better people and be more aligned with who they are. And they come to me for tools on, you know, how do I, like I had one CEO who runs a FinTech fund and he came to me and said, how do I think without using linear thought, I want to be able to just pluck information out of the field. Mm. And I was like, okay, you're my current favorite client. <laughs> <laughs> now I work with their whole fund. Um, and then there's um, people who are in pain and it can be physical pain or emotional pain that show up at my door. And almost always when someone comes in with a physical problem, we get to the other side of the question and we seek this other answer as well. And medicine's fine for dealing with an imbalance, but changing the, you know, the course of it is often about changing the way that you're living. And so those people come to me and then there are people who wake up one day and they're like, I've done everything I wanted to do and I'm not fulfilled. Why? <laughs> and they call me. Mm, yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, I, I've said this before, but Carolyn Mace, who I also just adore, um, says people wake up because of chaos or curiosity. So it's usually one or mm. the other. And, and I mean, I think it's much easier to wake to to go through this this path when it's just curiosity and not your whole world falling apart. So yeah, I'd take that a step further and say the difference between chaos and curiosity is your point of view. Mm, yeah, <laughs> because I feel like chaos is the attachment to what was, and curiosity is the exploration of what is. Mm, yeah. Thomas, can you walk us through the entire process of how you treat your patients? Um, or I said maybe clients is what I should call them. Because you work with so many different modalities. So I'm really curious what your process is uh, on how to work with these, cl these clients with all these different types of issues. So if it's in the Pathfinder side, whether it's, you know, a leadership team or an individual um, the first thing I do is sit down with them for a couple hours and just see if I think I can be of service to them. Um, and that usually, you know, is a long conversation that sort of is this odd combination of a health history and a life history and a suffering history and a spiritual history. <laughs> Um, there's a huge questionnaire that I use, um, to help people kind of map their inner landscape. And then we start working through whatever the right tool is for the moment. So because it's a layer process, as you know, like you peel back one layer of the onion at a time, you have to start with you know, the things that are the most in the way. So for everybody, it's different. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's a relationship issue. Maybe it's a lifestyle issue. Maybe it's a housing issue. <laughs> but we get to the sort of critical, um, immediate issues and stabilize them. And then we start to work with movement, meditation, herbal medicine, acupuncture, um, sometimes I'll do immersions where we'll go off for a couple days. Uh, if I think they 
need some kind of tool that I don't have, I bring somebody to them for that. And um, I think the combination of meditation, movement, and inquiry combined with homework that they're obviously doing, like writing and practicing and studying in some way, um, helps to you know build this map for them. What I find with all the tools I have is that most of them aren't for most people, but some of them are for most people. And so whatever tool is going to be the one that works for someone is the one that I use. You know, if I'm sitting with Henry Kissinger and I tell him to meditate, that's really just not going to go. (laughs) (laughs) But if I talk to him about his love of his dog, you know, then I'll see a connecting point. Right, right. Um, and and that's how it is with with everyone. There's a primal thread that's running through everyone. That's like the reflection of their essential nature. And as I'm talking with them, that shows up for me. I feel it in the field and allow myself by not trying to you know own it or control it to bring it into the um, moment that we're discussing and step into the practice that they need. And so I often don't know in advance what's going to be the thing. Yeah. In fact, I don't ever know in advance what's going to be the thing. (laughs) That's, that's, yeah, it's, it's uh, kind of like the way even internal medicine works where a patient comes and there's just, could be a myriad number of ways that you can diagnose the situation. And so that's really profound. And I'm sure that your intuition grows over time once you see a lot of different threads and, you know, have this kind of uh, inner sense, this knowing uh, uh, how to move forward. Yeah, I think there's a couple things that happen. You know, in the practice, our goal is to, we say, polish the mirror of the heart until its reflection no longer has any um, impurities or, you know, streaks in it anywhere. And then you'll be perceiving reality directly. And if that's what's happening and you're not trying to do anything, you can then just say what you're seeing and it will resonate. But that's different than Western culture, right? Like we want to acquire acquisition of knowledge is how people see knowledge. This is not acquisition of knowledge. Is there, I can, I want to double click on that, but I feel like we can have our own show just about (laughs) that question. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm. I love that you said double click. I've never heard anyone say that. That's awesome. Is there any experience or situation that you don't use your tools or maybe there's someone that walks in and you kind of just think, you know, this is, this is maybe not appropriate for them or, or not? All the time. Oh, really? <laughs> I mean, not all the time, but I would say, in fact, I think I'm known for this, <laughs> <laughs> but if I, if I don't think I can help or if I don't think you really need help like that. Um, I'll tell people. So like, especially in the medicine world, um, my favorite example is this guy had made an appointment with me and he had had brain surgery and he'd had a headache. He'd had a headache every single day since his brain surgery for seven months. And the day he came in to see me, he didn't have a headache. And he's like, well, I figured, you know, it's just today that I didn't have a headache and I'm here. So I figured I had the appointment and I was like, hold on, call me if you get another headache, but there's no way that we're going to mess with this moment when your body's found its center and he never got another headache. And I think that's really a, a big mistake that people actually often make where they because they help people, they feel like helping people is what they're supposed to do all the time. But actually not helping people is often just as helpful. Yes. I love that so much. Um, and I think 
there's an integrity there to where, you know, a lot of people might just, in other industries, especially, I think that we're so consumed by profitability over patient outcome. And so Mm -hmm. I think in this space, I think because we're working with such a vulnerable uh, situation for people, I think that's incredibly powerful. Wow. Thomas, can you tell us if you have a morning ritual and what your morning practice looks like, how do you set up your day? I think for so many practitioners and people in the uh, spiritual and wellness space, the morning is the most important part of the day. And we'd love to hear what your morning ritual is, if there's something maybe we could borrow from that morning ritual. And it's totally fine if you don't have one. (laughs) No, it's funny. I get asked this question a lot and I am, um, I'm a consistently inconsistent person <laughs> in that some days I get up at 4.45 and I um, I start my day with a um, glass of warm water with a little bit of lemon in it. And then I have a really awesome oat latte that I make in my espresso machine. <laughs> <laughs> and I used to be a bulletproof, you know, I used to do uh, the whole bulletproof thing, but I've sort of lost my interest in it. I don't know what that is. And now I just, uh, I love a little oat milk in my espresso. And then I sit down and talk to my wife and try to have a moment with her. Um, whenever we sit down on the couch, all the animals climb up. We have a couple cats and a dog. And if it's before she's up, then I'll um, go outside and sit in the morning sunrise and do my meditation practice. Or I'll sit at my altar and do my practice if it's cold out. But I think for me, the most important thing is that my day starts with 20 to 30 minutes of this quiet uh, assimilation to consciousness. And I don't like to limit what that's going to look like for me. And it's I mean, I'm pretty sure I'm dopamine receptor deficient. And so novelty is something I'm always seeking. (laughs) And how I get to novel is different than most people. But I'm uh, I'm not a consistent person. I meditate every day. I move every day. I try to do good every day. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I follow the precepts of my lineage. I'm a Chuanjin Longmen Taoist, which is a complete reality dragon gate Taoist. And so I have to follow my precepts, but, um, but I think that, yeah, one of the, one of the things about the morning is that if you have teenagers or kids, um, you're getting them to school and all of those things, you know, the complexity of a, of a big family life, changes morning ritual also and if you can't adapt you're in trouble (laughs) (laughs) i don't eat until three in the afternoon ever wow Um, and i've always just been built that way i know it's intermittent fasting is really a big thing right now but i've always just done that so you sorry that really (laughs) caught me off guard (laughs) uh (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for sharing your morning ritual. And um, yeah, I want to hear more about the 3 p.m. So you you eat, do you have a window that you eat between 3 p.m. and what is it? 7 yeah, I'm PM? a 16-hour faster. But, uh, okay. but again, like, you know, the science caught up with me and I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> but I'd always been that way. I just don't operate... Um, like the morning isn't a time for me to put a bunch of food in me, which I know is counterintuitive to a lot of people, but it's just never been my way. Wow. Um, and I like the, I like the feeling of being empty during the day physically, my stomach and my digestion. Um, so that I, I feel more like nimble and lithe in my, in my world. And then when the sun goes down, you know, I've had a meal and I'll have another one maybe. But often I just eat one meal a day. Wow. I don't seem to need that much food. <laughs> it's very impressive. <laughs> I'm very, <laughs> I'm, like, wow, I'm going to try that. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm also like, I'm 56 years old and uh, 
I don't know. I'm kind of, you know, like, uh, I just listen to what feels like is right for me and my body just doesn't look for food in the daytime until the afternoon. Wow. Well, you look 20 years younger, so that's probably <laughs> this intermittent fasting is working. <laughs> and, and of I course honestly think, you know, I think it's the Qigong. Like I just went and had a test done on my heart where they do a scan of your heart and they can see the calcium levels. And from that, they can tell how much placking you have. And I did this because all the men in my family die at the latest at 57 of a heart attack, which is next year. My brother died younger than that. But, um, and I've always just done whatever I wanted. And so I went and did this test and the score goes from zero to 400 of, you know, how much placking you have in your arteries. And I'm not a vegetarian, although I'm trying to be, but I'll eat sort of whatever I want, you know, healthy, clean food. But, um, and my score was a zero. Wow. And I attribute it. <laughs> One hundred percent to my qigong practice, which I think is the thing that has kept me nimble and healthy and elastic and alive and open. Wow, amazing! That's really incredible. Oh wow! Well, you've inspired me to to start doing qigong now every day. So I'm and <laughs> and, and also we'll see how long the intermittent fasting uh, works, but. <laughs> I mean, if it works for you, but if it doesn't work for you, you shouldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> oh, my dad, uh, my dad does intermittent fasting as well. And uh, yeah, he also looks a lot or he acts a lot, <laughs> I guess, younger than his, <laughs> than his age. You know, he's, he's running, he's building, you know, and uh, I, yeah, I've heard so many great, great things about fasting. Uh, Thomas, last few questions. Uh, this has been just so interesting. Yeah. I'm really learning a lot from this conversation. I'm sure the audience has as well, or will as well. What sort of things have surprised you on this journey and on this path? I mean, I think the first thing that surprised me was that I lived past 35. Yeah. And then <laughs> the, the second thing that surprised me was how long I waited to be living, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like the realization of the, of the gift of being here. I mean, I had, I've had like multiple people die with me sitting next to them. And, um, it took a bunch of those experiences for me to really wake up to being here. Mm. But I think maybe the most, uh, surprising thing of all was just how much how completely we already know how to be here and how to live our our destiny here and how much confusion the reality we live in in our minds relationship to it can confuse us i was really and i'm married for 25 years that was pretty surprising to me that <laughs> that we uh, managed to do that and stay interested and best friends and also like, you know, valid uh, skilled enemies at times, but <laughs> always, always laughing. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, ex I didn't, you know, expect or not expect that, but I was surprised to see like, 25 years later that we still like find ourselves hysterically laughing at 6am over something <laughs> someone says. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. <laughs> that's so great. And Thomas, the, the number two, you mentioned, um, that, you know, in terms of that, it took you so long to, I guess, like start living. Um, was that because mm -hmm. of all the experiences you, you had with, uh, with sort of people on their deathbed or, what what was the sort of catalyst? You know, I think the the difference for me was the. I would say I was running at life, like almost giving it the middle finger, like "Come on, let's see what you got." Like I was like, "Come at me!" <laughs> I had an <laughs> adversarial relationship with life, and it made for lots of interesting moments. But 
the appreciation of living and the richness of information and emotion and experience of living, connecting, not the like roller coaster of emotion, but the like profound feeling of emotion without it sort of causing me to fall down or anything. And the, you know, the profound gift of human beings and nature and chance and subtlety <laughs> all just uh i just hadn't been taking it in that way i thought that i had been i was a poet and a you know a seer and doer and i thought that i was like living because it was like capital l you know <laughs> but um now with like all lowercase you know subscript almost I feel like I'm living at such a more rich and fulfilling level all the time. It is gratitude. I mean, I am grateful to be here for the time that I'm here. And I want to and I want to share that. Like I want to help people do that. Yeah. Wow. Thomas, what are some books that or maybe even just uh, people that have inspired you on this path. What other resources before we get into how people can find you um, might be helpful yeah. to our audience? You know that saying, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'd like to amend that and say, when the student is ready, they can see the teacher. Because mm -hmm. it's the merit of the student, right? And what I realized sort of in the middle was that we're all teachers for each other. And uh, the more you can kind of perceive a teacher in the moment, no matter who it is, the more um, you can engage. I know that seems really abstract, but that's my way of just saying it's helpful in the beginning um, locally, at least post-Kent, post-pandemic, to have a teacher who's around you that you could, you know, get in front of if it's possible. Um, as far as teachers go, I would say it's a, it's a good practice to go and spend a few sessions with somebody, try what they're doing, um, see how it feels in your body, in your mind, but also look at their students. And if their students are showing an evolution in their process, then that tells you that they can teach as well as do. Because there are masters who are amazingly skilled and their students aren't. And so to see the evolution in the students from the beginning to the senior students, you should be able to see that shift. So that's a helpful sort of rubric for people to use. Um, there's a great book by Roger Janke. I think it's pronounced Janke, but it's J-A-N-K-E called The Healing Promise of Chi. That's a really um, reader-friendly uh, text on Qigong and Chi and a lot of the sort of fundamental concepts that are related to it. That's a nice book. Uh, the Tao Te Ching, which is the classic of virtue and the way is how it's often translated, is the sort of great poetic fundamental text Daniel Reed has a bunch of great books on Qigong, and so does Eva Wong um, that are sort of comprehensive. And they have some good books on Taoism, especially Eva Wong does. Those are all very kind of mainstream, easy to digest sort of books. Amazing. Um, so as a, as a lay person, I would, I would start with something from one of them. What do you want to tell our listeners about their health and wellness? What's sort of the main takeaway? Um, I want to say to them, let go of the narrative of what you think uh, is off in you or where you came from and how it's limited you or anything that's getting placed in a position of right or wrong or future and past. And 
take some time to be in the present moment of assessing where in your life feels right. Um, not right. Where in your life feels aligned, right? Where in your life do you sort of notice a day's gone by and you never even thought to yourself, why am I doing this thing or why am I here? A day's gone by and you're not even tired even though you were doing things all day because you just love doing them. Or a moment that your child or someone you know smiles at you and you feel your heart start to soften and open and instead of stopping it, you let it come back out and reflect back to that person. And maybe ultimately to be able to receive and know that the hidden gift of receiving is that you allow someone else to fulfill their destiny of giving in that moment. And you give them the gift of their purpose being of value in the world also. Mm, wow. So beautiful. I think so many of us have a real difficulty with receiving. I think that's kind of been a, that's its own kind of issue. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all think like, oh yeah, it's hard to receive because I have to be vulnerable. But the easy sort of cheat for that or like the way around it is to say, oh, well, actually, if I receive, I'm giving the gift of allowing someone to help me, which is what they want. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> you know, it's an amazing flip of that script to like, oh, I'm giving by receiving. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Because whenever that. you've done something for someone and helped them, you're like, you feel really good about yourself, right? It feels really good to be able to help someone or be able to do something for someone. And so you're giving someone that when you receive, and it's true. Oh, totally. Totally. I mean, I think, yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, I think what many of us have had to learn a very hard lesson when it comes to receiving. And I love the way that you kind of, flip this, the script on it. So <laughs> I'll think about that next time. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas, so are there any resources that you can point folks to in order to learn more about you, website, uh, social media? Where can people find you if they want to join your Qigong classes? I assume that they're both, you said, live and recorded in a library format. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what are some websites? Yeah, so I mean, you can go to thomasdroge.com and from there you can link through to the, um, there's a Qigong page and you can go, there's a two week free trial to sign up for the classes and I teach three days a week and then the classes are all recorded. So that allows people also, if they come on board, they can go back and, um, if we're like, we're doing a particular form on Saturdays right now, so you can go back and start it the first class, which is the Taiji level one. And you can go through those classes to get caught up and then jump into a live class. Um, it's broken up so that Wednesdays are seated practice and meditation. Mondays are strength Qigong practices and Saturdays are classical form practices with zoom. Um, and they're all recorded on this platform that I use called union, uh, that puts them into a library and, you have access to all the recordings going back. And then, um, yeah, I'm on Instagram, Thomas Droge. I often throw up a video here and there of some practices on IGTV so that people can play around with things. And Facebook, etc. That's the same. Amazing. But I would say if you want to experience Qigong with me anyway, um, yeah, just come sign up for a two-week trial and come play with us. Okay, wonderful. And then pathfinding, they could still they can work with you uh, in one-on-one -on -one sessions. Yeah, that's though. on the Thomas Church. Yeah, it's I'm doing a lot of Zoom work with people, and um, it's actually working fine. The only thing that's missing is that I used to have acupuncture at the end of the sessions, which was a great like normalizing tool, but um, the work's cranking online, so. And there's more explanations of Pathfinder on the Thomas Droge website. Okay, wonderful. 
Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time, Thomas. This was uh, an enlightening conversation. I feel like I learned a lot and have a lot to think oh, about man. after this conversation. <laughs> so I'm sure many of the <laughs> listeners will as well. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I well, can reach out to me and I'm happy to answer questions or anything like that. Okay. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much. So grateful for your time. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Oh, thank you. Your <laughs> pleasure to talk to you, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. Just, yeah, I'm really excited about this work and, and you have a, like a poet's mind when you explain things. So it's really fascinating to, mm. yeah, to hear, hear how you are navigating this world. Thank you. For our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about Qigong, consciousness, the Tao, and pathfinding. You can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. Thanks again.